Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to my favorite time of the week. And once again, I'm delighted to have um, an old friend and someone who's backed by popular demand. People enjoyed the series we did, um, I think it was about uh, eight months ago, and people found that very interesting with David's insights on his uh, time in the military and different uh, tours that he's done, but also his eight years in business since then as he, an executive in Talos. Um, so David, welcome. Very good to have you on the series. And uh, perhaps we could begin with, uh, tell us about the impact of COVID-19 on you personally and how you're managing with uh, the crisis and uh, having been on furlough. Tell us all about it. Uh, well, really good to see you again, Jonathan. And thanks very much, Ben, for having me on. Uh, yes, COVID-19 had an immediate impact on me, actually, uh, as I got it as an early adopter after a trip to London. Um, although officially categorised as, as mild symptoms, therefore not needing hospitalisation, I was more ill, more Ill than I've ever been in my life uh, over five days, and it was actually pretty grim. Um, and then just after I recovered, I was placed on furlough, and I've been on furlough since April, and I'm actually starting back at work tomorrow. Um, Yay! I have to say that life on furlough has made uh, a lot, was helped a lot by seeing a uh, a former submarine captain interviewed on the BBC uh, who advised how to survive in isolation. Um, he recommended keeping fit, um, having a routine, uh, keeping the place tidy uh, and having downtime. Uh, also not to launch the nuclear missiles unless authorised. Well, he didn't actually say that, but I thought he perhaps <laughs> did have done. Um, but I did, I stuck to his advice. Uh, I developed a regular exercise regime. Um, I I was helped by my old regimental physical training instructor who introduced me to things like air squats and planks uh, to add to my burpees and squat thrusts. Uh, but I also learned some new skills and kept myself busy. And I'm probably more physically fit now than I've been in ages. Uh, but I did also concentrate on mental fitness. Um, at first, when I was put on furlough, that little voice that we all have was trying to unsettle me. But I decided to see the positives uh, of lockdown and furlough and to make the most of it. And I say I learned some new skills. I learned how to do ladies' hairdressing. Um, what I learned from that is get yourself some sharp scissors, be methodical, and uh, don't take too much off in one go. But, uh, <laughs> but to be serious, I, I've actually been very fortunate and well supported by my company, Talis. They invested in a well-being app uh, for all employers, which I found really, really useful. Um, and I'm also aware that many others, and we were chatting about this earlier, Ben, many others have had a really torrid time over the last few months. So I, I consider myself extremely lucky. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to have actually gone through having COVID-19, I think I, I found it when talking with you, David, I think uh, just at the time you were getting it, and, and I didn't realise just how hard it would hit people. And I, I've always admired you for being someone who's kept himself constantly fit and healthy. But if a man like you catches COVID-19 and it whacks you so hard that you've never been that ill, uh, it really brought it home to me. Um, and I think a lot of people think, oh, it's somebody else gets it. Or when a, a good friend of yours gets it, it really makes you, um, uh, really wakes you up to it. But also I do admire the way that you 
got stuck into furlough and, and you know, a, a routine and a discipline. And I found that although not on furlough, you know, that there is less work around and you have to work much harder to win the work that you're in, whether going back to your job in Talis or whether you're self-employed like myself or Ben's working in LinkedIn, everybody that I'm talking to is having to work much harder than ever before to get the same results they got with an easier with an easier trip. Um, and um, so delighted that you're, you're, you're back at work tomorrow. The next question we had for you was, what's your advice for, for dealing with a crisis in general? Okay, we, we're all in the middle of COVID-19 and, and I've, I've really taken your submarine commander's analogy and I, I found that helpful when you shared that bef before. And I've been very disciplined about keeping fit every day and routines and micro habits. But, but in more generic terms, you've been in many different crises where you know lives are at stake, people are dying, or there's there's worse things going on. One lady the other day said, "This is not you know ER. Um, you know people aren't dying. It, it's actually just PR that we're involved in." She was in marketing, um, but you know people in this situation, it is very serious, and people will die if we get it wrong. Um, but but any tips and advice about leading in a crisis and dealing with it? Yes, I think uh, I think when you've been in the military for thirty years, you're pretty well set for uh, dealing with crisis, as you said. It's, it's it's what you're sort of there for. But I I remember some very good advice from an old friend of mine who was uh, at one stage commandant at Sandhurst, just as I was finishing there. Uh, Lieutenant General Tim Evans, I think you've had him on, uh, Jonathan. Mm, he, was yeah. an ex he was an excellent and very brave officer, always calm in a crisis, uh, whether it's a tr as a troop commander in the first Gulf War or actually when he was a brigade commander in Basra after the second Gulf War, where he was in firefights. Um, he said, grip yourself, grip your team, and then grip the situation. Um, and I think this is really sound advice. I very much recognize it as a powerful first response. You know, grip yourself first and uh, show calmness on the outside, even though inside you're probably in a little bit of turmoil. It's interesting, at Sandhurst, I, I used to give a talk to the cadets um, after their first six weeks, where I tried to underline what officers were there to do. And I'd, I'd learned 30 years earlier as a cadet at Sandhurst, it was actually from a thought for, for the day that we had to learn, that it's easy, it's easy to take the helm when the sea is calm. Um, so I told the cadets then that you know, leadership is about crisis. And I highlighted this by showing them a clip from the opening sequence of um, the Steven Spielberg film, Saving Private Ryan. That's where Captain John uh, Miller, who was played by Tom Hanks, he's in shock on Omaha Beach uh, at the D-Day landings. And um, mm. everything, everything's going wrong. Uh, he's confused, he's scared, he's disorientated. He looks up and he sees a, a soldier shouting at him. Um, and he can't hear him at first, and he um, he focuses and he concentrates, and then he realizes that the soldier is shouting at him, "What do we do now, sir?" And I stop the film and say, "Say to these cadets, that is what you're here for to answer that question. What do we do now?" Mm -hmm. And I call it the "What do we do now?" moment, and that's so to me that's the very crux of leadership. Um, and we used to summarize it at Sandhurst as developing someone who who doesn't know, just know what to think, but knows how to think and how to think under pressure. And we had an acid test, you know, can these people go out on operations? Can they, as a leader, can they think, decide, communicate, act and inspire people whilst they're scared um, and under pressure um, and in a complex, dangerous and changing environment? 
So the leader needs to be able to create clarity out of chaos. You therefore need to invest in leadership training and leaders before the crisis to survive the crisis. And this is where your resilience and your continuity will come from. Yeah. And my biggest personal crisis was actually a double parachute malfunction on a drop in the United States in 1996 at night from 800 feet. Um, and interestingly, the training that I'd done for many hours in flight swings years before that kicked in and I performed the right skip, the right drills and made a safe, if somewhat scary descent. But it was that investment and training uh, and preparedness for a crisis that actually saved my life that night. Wow. Just, just, yeah. just stay, with that, stay with that for a second, Dave. So, so you're, you went out of the door, the chute yeah. should have been open, it didn't open, you pulled your reserve, yeah. that didn't work. How, how, did you, how did you make it without just hitting the ground from 800 feet? Well, you have to get, you have to, because the, we're actually using American parachutes, which are quite, every, um, every parachute incident, they had live footage of, yeah. With the British, with the RAF, they used to have sort of uh, simulation of it, but they had live footage of every single parachute malfunction, which was a bit worrying. So, um, yeah, the, the, the T-10 Charlie was the parachute and the reserve didn't have a kicker spring, uh, spring, so you had to bring it back in, collapse it, and then throw it out again and try and steer it away from what was loads of twists in the main canopy. So, uh, yeah, I just did the drills and that was that. But uh, wow. it was quite a heavy landing. Yeah. But there's another point I had... Uh, Jonathan, it was, it was as a commanding officer of an engineer regiment in the second Gulf War. Um, before I took over a command, I, I'd written a list of things that I thought were important based on my experience. And they weren't necessarily things that I'd been taught. Um, and I called them my five priorities and I shared them with every, everyone in the regiment. So they knew, you know, what was on my mind and what I was thinking and what was important. And the first one was morale. Um, and I think with high morale, you can achieve anything. And, and I think General Slim demonstrated that with the 14th Armour in Burma in the Second World War. You know, he raised morale when he turned it. He wrote his book, Defeat into Victory. Mm. And it was the, the increase in morale, which was the battle winning um, sort of factor. Yeah. The second one was discipline. Um, and it's being professionally disciplined in everything that you do. Make the deadlines, do what you're committed to do and do what other people are relying on you to do. So that discipline is really important. Mm. The next one I used was capabilities and procedures. You know, really know your job, really know your equipment, your capabilities, and how to work with other people very quickly. So linking to other formations units and in business into other business units mm. to operate effectively and efficiently immediately. You've got to be versatile to be able to do that, but you have to be a complete master of your brief. Mm. The next one, actually, which isn't very much like me, it was administration. Um, so do the boring but essential stuff, and that includes the paperwork. Um, and get that done. And then the final one, I think it's really important is stay fit. Um, if you're fit, your mind can still function and even when you're tired and, and you're scared. So fitness is really important. And actually yeah. with a little adaptation, I've, used, I've, I've usefully applied these priorities to uh, leading teams in industry. Yeah. And Dave, just staying with that one, one moment, we've got a couple of questions. I encourage people to keep sending questions in while this is going on. Ben, perhaps we could put up James Hardy's second question. And it's nice to see James, who was a fellow instructor at Santos with, no, it was different James Hardy. James was talking, his first question was, my observation that in a crisis is one thing, it's the freeze that is the challenge um, to break in order to find the opportunity. So, and here, everyone freezes a little. Any advice on breaking the freeze up and down the chain? I presume this is the mental freeze or people not knowing what to do. Dave, what's your view? 
I think that's a James. That's a really good question. Um, and again, I'll, I'll go back to Sandra. So we used to um, have like a complexity dial. We could crank up on cadets and just try and get to the point to see if they were going to freeze. Because if they were going to freeze, it was better that they froze at Sandhurst in a, in a complex environment we'd created than they froze when they were out on operations. So I think everyone does have a freeze point. Um, I think how do you how do you break out of it? I think again. Training, training is really important. If you if you teach people how to think, not what to think, then they've got a golf bag of skills that they can bring to actually solve it. But you'll freeze when you're scared. You'll freeze when you've got uh, sensory overload. There's too much information. Um, and I know it's something you discussed with Kate the other day. Take it. Take time. Make sure you've had your sleep. Make sure your brain's functioning. You've eaten. You've drunk. You've looked after yourself. Go away. Have a think about it. Don't be rushed into an immediate response. But yeah. accept that you've frozen and then just press pause, get yourself back together, you know, say, admit that it's happened because it, it happens to everybody. You just had that moment. And yeah. then just take some time, get your composure back and start thinking again. Um, and that's 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 that would be my advice. Try and prevent it happening in the first place by preparing yourself, looking after yourself. But when mm. it happens, take a pause, accept it's happened, step back. And then if you've got the time, take some time to give it some thought and then come back and pick up the reins and, and uh, drive on again. Brilliant. And, and maybe we'll add uh, Gary Hearn, who uh, began life as a Royal Signals uh, signalman and then uh, colonel at the Defence Academy. I think he was coming, commenting on one of the funny stories you were telling there about the blokes saying, boss, bad, bad drills. <laughs> I'm not sure what, uh, uh, what which particular aspect he was talking to. Maybe it was when your parachute didn't work, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'd say it's bad parachute packing drills, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Gary's right. There's some bad drills somewhere in that story. Yeah, and then Don, can we have Don's question? Quite a long one, but he he liked he very much liked your comments uh, on the last time you were on. Don, I, I think rather than ask this question, I'm, I'm going to cover this a bit later on in the talk, but uh, I definitely get what you're saying. I, I think just just in summary, a lot of it comes down to treat people how you'd like to be treated yourself. Um, and if you do that, then um, you you know it's the impact you have on people that they remember, um, not necessarily what you're doing. So or what you say, it's 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 how you make people feel. So I think always be con conscious of that. I think it's really to do with emotional emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave, thanks for that. Sorry, it's quite good just getting these questions as we as we yeah, come through. Good. But I'll, I'll go back to some of the questions we were thinking about. We were talking about who inspired you as a leader and people that you know who handled challenges well. And so what can people who are listening to this uh, session take away as these are good skills, these are a good attitude to take to handle situations? Well, what about leaders and teams that you've been with who've handled challenges well? Um, well, the first one, I, I always think of David Sterling because he, he founded the SES in the Western Desert in, uh, in 1941. Um, and he, the challenge was there, they, they were having a difficult time um, and he changed the way things were done. He set up this, this unit that could go behind enemy lines and cause chaos and, um, and, and really using uh, unconventional tactics. So he changed the mindset. Um, and, but one of the things that really inspires me is, is his ethos that he created. Um, and he found this in, the, in, the, in, the, in 1941, but it actually continues. It inspires me today, and it's still the ethos of that regiment. And I'll just quickly run through it, because I think it's really important. 
The first one is the pursuit of excellence. You know, don't think you've made it. Always be seeking to learn, always be seeking to improve. The second one's humility. You know, don't blow your own trumpet. No one likes a braggart. You know, be humble. I think it's really important. Yeah. Classlessness, I mean, it's, it's slightly dated now as a term, but it means meritocracy. It's not, it's not your background. It's not where you've come from. It's what you bring to the team that's important. And then the last one, um, and certainly uh, really important when things go wrong, which they most probably will, is uh, maintain a sense of humour. Um, that, that's really important. Yeah, and, and uh, I was talking to Professor Roger Steer, who was on one of our sessions before. Roger talks about the three, the three hums, humility, humanity and humour as being yeah. really important. And, and that is, encapsulates your, your attitude, I, I know, having served with you. Um, so, Dave, yeah, what, what else about, um, about teams when you've been with a, a good team that's tackled a challenge well? Uh, what, what made that team so good? What qualities were instilled in the team where it worked well? I think, um, I think working with Special Forces soldiers is probably my example of this, you know, a, a fantastic team. And I sort of thought about what are the reasons for that. I think the main thing is, you know, these are self-motivating people. Uh, they're actually self-policing as well. Um, they not only knew what needed to be done, but they'd volunteered to do it as well. It actually made leadership extremely easy, I'd almost say. Um, they had great instincts. Um, you can't stop things going wrong, but these soldiers are very good at reacting quickly uh, and effectively to regain the initiative. You know, they had, I heard them describe once as alley cat skills. You know, they really had a very good operational instinct. Mm. Another point is, you know, they're really carefully selected from the wider forces, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Royal Marines. And one of the things is that their characters um, making them a good fit was, were as important as their professional skills. Mm. Um, so did they fit well? It's down to the characters. And, and therefore, you know, would they buy into, when looking, for, looking at the selection there, would they, would they live by the values and the ethos of that unit uh, that was created in the desert, you know, all that time ago in 1941? Mm. But I think the key, uh, the key is the selection of the team. Um, yeah. I noted uh, a few years ago in the Harvard Business Review, um, they, they published an article entitled, You Can't Delegate Talent Management to the HR Department. Well, mm. that was obviously a, a, pro a provocative headline. Um, but the point it made was that leaders um, must be intim intimately involved in team selection. And I think Sir Clive Woodward, um, you know, the, the, the manager of the successful England rugby team that won the World Cup, he said that the most in job, important job of the manager was selection of the team. Yeah. Yeah. And just, actually, staying, just, just staying with that for a moment, Dave, um, uh, it, it has been worrying me. Um, okay, it's a personal involvement, but a number of very famous firms that I've worked with in the past have just suddenly said, we're in a crisis, uh, cash flow is king, we're stopping all leadership development, all coaching um, for our leaders for the next 12 months. We're not spending a thing. In fact, you're halfway through a program, stop what you're doing. Um, and I said, but it, it would only cost a thousand pounds to finish off this program for the rest of the year. Yeah. No, we're not going to spend that money. I said, what's the message you're giving to your people that they're under great pressure, really stressed and traumatized by some difficult things that we're coaching through. And you're saying, no, stop it. No more of this. And, and, and yet you're a multi-billion pound business and you're going, the people don't matter. I mean, have, have you come across this with other firms and what's your view? 
Um, I understand the pressures, but because business uh, businesses aren't charities, I understand the pressures and the financial imperatives, and you know, um, you know, the demands of shareholders, and that 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 is business. And when you get into business, it is a different it is a different uh, environment. Um, so I, th I think what I noticed, I could summarize it by saying, you know, I saw leadership in the military as something that was was identified and then. Um, you know, you selected people, you recruited and you retained them. And throughout their careers, you kept topping them up with, you know, you know, for the officers, you started on leadership training before you started special to arms training. And then you carried on leadership courses all the way through your career at different ranks. I think sometimes uh, in business, the leadership training sort of comes a little bit at the end where you might have been a really good uh, software engineer or a systems engineer and you've, 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 you've progressed on your technical skills um, but then you find yourself put in charge of a team of a lot of other system and software engineers, and you can talk the language of you know, algorithms and all this sort of stuff, but actually having that experience of, of leading those teams and get the best out of them, you're put in a very difficult position if you haven't had that investment. And it comes back to my resilience and compliance earlier on. You know, it's what you do before the crisis um, that helps you get through the crisis. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, if... If I, I was, I did a transformation program, and, and one of my first observations was that if you get the leadership right, a lot of these problems are just going to uh, disperse. A lot of them were down to leadership. Now, obviously, something like COVID nineteen and the effects on the market and all this sort of stuff—that that that's that's catastrophic. So I understand very much why people have to really shore up a business down to just keep the business going, um, and then. It's how quickly you then start ramping up again these important, you know, investing in all this. But the investment should have been done before the crisis. That's why we do resilience planning, business continuity. So yeah, yeah, that's that's really important. And before I hand over to Ben with his um, quick fire questions, um, uh, one of the questions was really top tips for for a crisis and then coming out of a crisis, recovering from it, getting over. The drama that you've been involved in. What's what's been your experience there, Dave, in both in the military and in in business? Well, Jonathan, I'm going to get a little bit off piste here. Good, I love <laughs> and, it. Um, I'm going to let me start with an advert for for an amazing breakthrough. Um, scientists have discovered a revolutionary new treatment uh, that's going to make you live longer. It's going to enhance your memory. It's going to make you more creative. Uh, it makes you look more attractive. It keeps you slim and lowers your food cravings. It protects you against dementia. It wards off colds and flu. It lowers your risk of a heart attack and a stroke, not to mention diabetes. It'll make you feel happier, less depressed and anxious. And um, are you interested in that? And, <laughs> you bet. And, you bet. <laughs> okay. And the thing is, the product that, that delivers all of that is not a new wonder drug. It's actually sleep. Mm. And I've just read yeah. Professor Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, The New Science of Sleep and Dreams. I love that book. Yeah. I now sleep between seven and eight hours uh, a night, and the difference has been astonishing. Um, so my top tip you know, to, to, to lead in a crisis is get your sleep. You know, mm -hmm. Read this book, Why We Sleep, uh, okay. and place sleep as one of your highest priorities and aim for eight hours sleep a night, not just every now and then, but every night. Because if you haven't got that fundamental baseline of being able to cope, your mind's working well, you know, you, you, you're, you're not going to cope. And you, what you're not going to have is the endurance, because this isn't going to be over with just, um, you know, three months surge. 
no. it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last a long time. So you've really got to look after yourself, but to keep your mind active and to keep yourself healthy. My top tip would be get your sleep because actually you've talked about people having to work a lot harder to get the same thing. Well, that's, the, that's an increase in stress. You know, that's more worry. That's waking at three in the morning, worrying about things. That's not helping your day job. So really, I would say learn about how important sleep is. And that, that, would, be, that would just be my number one top tip. I've really learned it recently. Yeah. And, and I, before I hand over to Ben, I'd really echo that. I, I read that book about uh, a year or two ago. And yeah. um, I now sleep um, or I'm certainly asleep for eight and a half hours, whether it's REM, deep sleep or whatever. Uh, and I also have a power nap for 20 minutes around about one o'clock. And, and that really gives me two, almost like two days in one day. A power yes. nap is a key thing, which he recommends as well. Yes. And wherever I am, I put on the eye patch, you know, these really good eye patches and yeah. um, the noise cancelling headset. And I will sleep under desks, all sorts. Um, yeah. But um, one of the great joys of working from home is just going to your own bed and you sleep. <laughs> and then you come back ready to go. But um, enough of me. Over to Ben. Fantastic to have you on, on board, David. It's been been um, some lo lovely advice that you're giving out now. So we're going to um, do some quick-fire questions. But during this time, we're going to ask people um, to please like, comment, um, and ask questions on the feed. It would be lovely to hear, hear from you um, and uh, get some more questions coming for David. Sure. But while we're waiting for those questions, we always look at um, some of the secrets that have made to your success. Um, and we look at three different buckets, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, okay. So if you're ready, we'll, we'll jump in. Um, yeah. So you've been in countless um, stressful, tough situations. And how do you maintain your health um, during these stressful times, um, both mentally and physically? Yeah, I think, I think if you want your brain and body to function well, you have to give it, you have to give it the right fuel. And you have to feed yourself well. I've heard, I've heard it described as you're a complicated houseplant. You know, you need light, you need water, you need food. Um, you also need exercise. Um, so get the diet right. And um, I think that, that's really important. And eat regularly, get your sleep. We've talked about that. Uh, on exercise, I, I find exercising uh, outside in nature is far better. I much prefer that to the gym or the pool. So river swimming, uh, sea kayaking, cycling through beautiful countryside, you know, that's the sort of thing that works, works best for me. Um, mm. So I, I think I, I discussed with Jonathan before, I mean, two years after I left the army, I was, I, I was unfortunate to, to get uh, PTSD. Uh, and people helped me with that for, for almost two years. Um, so what I learned was to identify the triggers, um, mm. the, the situations that would, would, would actually get inside the head and start you know, making you anxious over things that you, there's no need to get anxious about. And then having coping mechanisms. So I would say that, you know, if you do feel that you're, you're having problems with that sort of thing, you know, do seek help. There are there are people that can help you, professional uh, help with advice and techniques. So you can identify the warning signs um, mm. and you can you can get your own coping me mechanisms. So, but prevention is better than cure. So if, if you, you know, during these times of stress, of stress really look after yourself do all the things we've talked about and uh, yeah you know try and prevent it rather than work out you know how you're going to how you're going to solve it when it happens i think that's really important yeah so relevant at the moment i, I think there's lots of people that have they've struggled with lockdown struggled with a lot of stress over over their future um so it's a really good, really good point did um 
did uh, your your sort of process to to talking about it was that was that a difficult one? I read about it first um, because I didn't understand what was happening because mm. people that knew me, they, I saw people and said, oh, I'm, I'm not very well. And uh, it was, um, they said, crikey, you know, it, you were the last person I'd ever think of that, that would get this. So I was quite sort of outgoing and sort of mm. quite happy. Um, and then it just creeped up on me. Uh, so I, I read about it and then I realized that you, you need to go and uh, you need to go and ask for help. And uh, mm. so that, that that's what I did. And you know, it doesn't matter, um, you know, there's different levels of it. It doesn't matter what level you've got. What you've got is what you've got. It's very personal to you and it's it's something you need to sort out because it's, it's pretty miserable. Um, mm. So I think um, learn about it, find out what's happening, understanding it's the first thing, um, re yeah. recognizing that it's not just you, it's uh, it's quite common, and then knowing where to go for the help and, and then getting the right people to help you and then sticking with what they advise you to do and then come up with your own mechanisms to you know look after yourself i suppose yeah yeah oh, thank, thanks for sharing on that one so we've had lots of comments on on the feed thank thanks to james don gary um there's been loads of comments and uh, a few questions here we've got um one from gary so i'll just put that up on here um so we rightly talk on during nature of leadership but do we really uh, do we have a feel for any areas in which character of leadership is changing? For instance, is there something that impacts leadership where we're not addressing or recognizing it? Gary, that's a really good question. I, I sort of think about that quite a lot. Um, I, I sort of, there's this term heroic leadership and non-heroic leadership. I don't really sign up to it, but I, I and there's also um, transformational leadership and um, transactional leadership. And I, I think that the main thing is um, that the world is changing. We're, we're going to a digital world and our leadership, I suppose, notwithstanding military leadership, but our, in, in, our leadership in industry was very, very much based on the industrial uh, era where you needed to more manage the lead. It was about, um, it was at outputs, it was performance, it was directing, measuring. Um, and I don't think that's so relevant now, um, you know, directing and measuring people doesn't inspire people you know that the talent now you've got to keep your talent the real important resource is the talent uh, in the digital world and yeah. people with those talents they don't respond to old leadership styles of direct and measure they respond to uh, um, supporting um, keeping keeping people informed resourcing them and giving them space to do the things they really enjoy doing so i think it's um i think that the emphasis changes from the, the old directive, uh, top of the hierarchy leadership style to you're becoming more of an enabler um, and you support and you provide the resources and you, 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 know, you, you become more part of the team um, as a facilitator for the team than necessarily that heroic person, top of the chain, giving orders and, uh, and, and giving targets and uh, you know, sanctioning and punishing people if they don't make those targets. So I think, uh, that was that's the fundamental yeah, that would be the fundamental sort of change in the mm. nature of leadership that I see, and that that's been driven by you know the environment changing from an industrial to a digital, and you know the the talent now decides, and if if, if they don't like the leadership, people they say don't lead companies, they lead they lead their bosses. So mm. I think that's yeah. why leadership's really really important to get that right. Hope that answers a, your question. Yeah, there's a great book on 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 the subject um, called Drive. 
uh, by a guy yeah. called Daniel Pink, um, okay. and and he talks about the three things which which look like you quite rightly say that um, are, are are necessary to um, motivate and inspire um, people, particularly in in um, in the modern world where you're looking for creativity rather than um, yeah. fast productivity. And you've got to look for creating autonomy, um, mastery, and challenge, and that's what what brings people um, at that sort of challenge and and uh, motivation over, over time. Yeah, I agree. With um, so, so there's a couple more comments. So we've got um, uh, just uh, Don McIntyre. Just um, I think uh, you answered one of his questions there, and he's, he was just uh, commenting back to say, um, "Great point on tone of management from HBR." First thing I did when I took over my current job was draft the values of the team and then explain to my boss how I would lead by example um, and what the example would consist of and the effect it would have. Yeah. I think the thing is a great exercise to actually sort of look at those sort of values that you you, you almost want to lead by. And, and uh, it's something that we do, do have done in, in LinkedIn and, and um, it really sort of served us as well. Have you applied that to your life in 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 the, in the sort of corporate world? Um, I th I think I, mean, I do I do quite a lot of mentoring now, and one of the one of the first things I say to people is you know let's not talk about good leadership. Let's talk about you know give me examples. Of, don't give me any names um, of of where you've seen sort of toxic leadership and how it made you feel, and then and then just bear that in mind as you go through as you develop as a leader. Just think, oh, I remember that happened to me. And it, 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 A, I didn't like it. B, it didn't really um, get the best out of me. Uh, and, and maybe C, that caused me to want to leave my job and go somewhere else because it, it became unbearable. It put stress on me. I wasn't happy. And I thought, I'll go somewhere else. Actually, pe people these days, I mean, I mean, money is, is one thing, but people are more interested in, in you know, having an interesting job, working with good teams, feeling secure, um, you know, money's part of it, but it's not. It's not everything. I know you're going to ask me about that in the future. <laughs> but I think, um, I think, yeah, that that point is it's um, pe learn learn from how, where people got leadership wrong and mm. how it made them feel, and just try not to sort of ever do that to other people. Yeah, and where it demotivates you. Um, thanks, Don. And um, James um, Hardy, I've uh, got a question from, from him. So one of the challenges, delegation authority, especially in a crisis, how important is this, um, is it to continue to delegate appropriately, even when you want to take control? I think delegation is a really important part of leadership. That's a great question, James. Um, I, I've i heard the advice, delegate to the point uh you know where you feel uncomfortable and then delegate mm. some more i've heard that a few times um attributed to a number of different people <laughs> but i think i think in your mind you sometimes think oh my god I'm, I'm trying to ask other people to do my job when actually you're not what you're doing is you're empowering people um you're giving them responsibility you're showing them that you trust them so you're you're thinking that they're they're feeling imposed upon but actually they're feeling trusted and empowered and this is good and what it does, delegation also, it, it declutters your intray, it declutters your mind so you can actually concentrate on the really important things that you should be concentrating on and, uh, and making the decisions that are really important. Um, so I, th I think one of the other things I note is when things go wrong, there's a tendency um, to step down one level and actually, you know, some people have got a great skill of delegating upwards and uh, if you <laughs> give them the opportunity, they will. 
and you'll end up wrapped around the axle of detail, um, trying to solve every every day-to-day -day problem around you, and it doesn't help anybody. And the biggest impact it has, it stops you doing your job, which might be more strategic, uh, setting the direction, looking what the markets are doing to make sure that you're um, you're doing the right thing, as opposed to looking downwards and just trying to sort out the day-to-day -day problems. When people are actually very capable of doing it, they might need some advice and or some more resource. We'll help them with that, but don't step into the pit and, and, and start taking over. Don't don't get um, I don't think don't get drawn into that. Mm. It's also a great way of, of of almost applying, as you said in 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 cadet training, you 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 push people to their to to their limits and and really put them under stress. And and yeah. and actually, how do you do that in a work environment? You should push people by delegating bigger tasks and bigger bigger opportunities. Um, so, so I suppose it sort of stress tests them a little bit and, yeah. and gives them the confidence yeah. to deal. Yeah, I'd, I'd look at it a different way, Ben. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put stress on people. I'd, I just want to give them opportunity to show mm. how good they are because they are. They have that potential. Your job is to unlock that potential, um, and you're giving them opportunities to do that. As soon as you regard it as a, I'm going to put some pressure on them and see if they can cope with that. I mean, that was Sandhurst preparing people to go out. We, we were asked to operationalize the training. So that people were ready to go straight out on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. So mm. we had to see if they were going to freeze. Let's do it on a training area, um, and hopefully then it won't happen. Or identify on a training area and maybe go around and do another cycle of training again and try again. But I think um, you know, trying to try and avoid stress. Mm. Everybody trying to avoid stress. So don't try and put stress on people in your team. Try and say, say I'm going to give you the opportunity here, and uh, if you need help come and ask me, and this is where being a role model and a mentor helps, you know, it's, it's not a test necessarily, it's an opportunity where you're there to help them through it, to help them expand, develop themselves and, and unlock, their, unlock their potential. It's a different mindset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, great, great point. Thanks, James. And um, uh, one final one from um, Don. So often in dynamic, high pressure or tough guy macho cultures, there that, that are high risk, nice people can be seen to be weak. Can a senior leader be nice without being perceived as weak? I think that's a, a really interesting point. I'm just, um, I just, I just met a, um, a guy was a number of years ago. He was the uh, the head of the New Zealand Army Academy, uh, and he visited Sanders. Mm. He was a really interesting man. Um, he had tremendous empathy um, and strong emotional intelligence, and he told me he'd been selected not by a military board but by a board of citizens, including people from all walks of life, teachers, academics, um, shopkeepers, whatever it was. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting. So I think this, you know, this macho, this, this heroic leadership thing um, is, I don't think it necessarily means, you know, there's nothing wrong with being quite nice about it. You might have to be tough. And another example, um, the one thing about that system is it, it stopped people recruiting in their own image. Um, and then I, I think that uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, um, she has a similar, similar leadership style. She strikes mm. a good balance between being empathetic and caring, but she can be firm and decisive when required. So I think, I think there's, you should have a spectrum and you just adopt what's needed for the, for the situation. I think trying to be the tough guy all the time, and it, it's not going to work. No. Good. Yeah, great, great example. Um, Jacinda seems to have got got some pretty major things done in her in her term, yeah. um, <laughs> and dealt with the COVID crisis um, a, a lot better than um, 
than some of the, I mean, the tough guy that, macho well, leaders. Yeah, I didn't look at the, I didn't see the detail, but there was one organisation um, responsible for the, the quarantine and mm. a couple of Brits, I think, came in and slipped through the net. She immediately said, right, the military move in. Take, and that was firm and decisive. And, you know, mm. so I think that's a, that's, that just shows that you can be caring and empathetic, but you prefer firm and decisive when you need to be. And that's, that's, yeah. that's a great model, I think. And she she also got the um, automatic weapons banned, didn't she? After the, um, yeah, exactly. the 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 tragedy that happened over there, and and really quickly, as, as, yeah. which which she is, is um, amazing. Yeah, so yeah. she does do the firm and decisive when she has to. But she explains it. Yeah. You know, she explains it, and she sits at home on a on a video camera with the, the children playing the bat, and she sits and she explains why she's made this decision. So, mm. yeah, it's very impressive. Why? Yeah, yeah. So, um, just want to rattle off the last couple of questions. It's nice to okay. get, get them get them done, so we we, we get the the little little nuggets of uh, of the way you have been successful. So, is there any piece of advice that you you have about about money that either you've received or or that you give? Um, I would say money does not make you happy. It might make your life a little bit easier, um, but the danger is when it becomes a focus for your existence. Um, so I'd say measure success in happiness, not money. Nice. If I can I like build it. on that, David, um, I was having a conversation with um, a couple of other leaders about particularly CEOs in some business and C-suite execs who, who use money as a metric, a measure of how good they're seen as. You know, it's not, they don't need money. They've got, they've got masses of money, but yet they want even more. And it's seen as a badge of honor, some feathers in their plumage. Yeah. Uh, and and it's not the way to do it. It's it's about a fulfilling life because they're some of them they have huge amounts of money, but they're still empty and they still feel unfulfilled. As one said to me, well, when you made your first million, you just you know you want to make your next. What? Get real. You know <laughs> where? Anyway, yeah, well, that's that's your yeah everyone's different. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that first million. James, James Selker. Nice to see James, who I remember from Sheffield. James, welcome. Uh, charming and firm and not mutually exclusive. What do you think on that, Dave? I agree with that. I, th I think charming is probably not the, the wrong word. I think charming can be a little bit uh, subversive, <laughs> but I think <laughs> em empathetic. I think empathetic, but firm when you need to be, uh, not mutually exclusive. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with James on that one. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, James. And and finally, just is, is there a piece of wisdom that you strive to live your, your, your life by, David? I think um, remember that you're braver than you believe, um, you're stronger than you feel, and you're smarter than you think. And those are wise <laughs> words from Christopher Robin to Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> uh, I love Lovely. That. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, Can I just take over for um, just a, a couple further, David, before we uh, we get one or two questions before we leave? We've got about about five minutes max. Um, what about amusing stories in difficult times? You've been in some really tough corners where you think, you know, like that that famous one about the Lone Ranger and you know Tonto, and they they think they're in a corner, but they crack some jokes and they have a fun time. Yeah. What would you say uh, some amusing stories that? Um, would be relevant for civilians as much as the military. Um, well, one's a bit. I've got obviously, you know, John, I've probably got quite a lot of stories. But one's surreal, one's quite funny. I, I've, 
I think the first one was I was very fortunate to uh, actually go out and be asked to train the close protection team for the King of Swaziland. And I went out with a team and uh, we were invited to uh, the Royal Hunt. And one Saturday, we all mounted up and went out to the uh, Royal uh, Hunting Lodge. And there was 10,000 uh, Swazi uh, warriors outside and they all went off and uh, did their hunt. And the king sort of ended up providing a load of impala and they all went off to barbecue or bry the impala. And he invited us into his hunting lodges, which is quite nice. And we went in there. And so there's me and five of the, five of the blokes, um, the king of Swaziland and the king of the Zulus. <laughs> and the king of the Zulus was a, a distinguished, quite an elder gentleman. He, he talked quite a lot. And I thought, well, I've got to think of something to say. And before I joined that, that regiment, I'd actually been a royal engineer. So and one, of the, one of the men of the team was Welsh. And I said, Your Majesty, I said, do you know the last time there was a captain of engineers, a Welshman and a king of the Zulus in the same place? It was Rock's Drift. And he looked at me and it all went really quiet. <laughs> and then he started laughing. And then, uh, and then he told me the story of um, Rock's Drift from the Zulu side. Oh, yeah. So my, point, my point from that is, you know, there's always two sides to the story. My second story, um, again, I'm very lucky. Again, in Africa, I went to uh, Botswana to train the president of Botswana's close protection team. And the British High Commissioner invited me to his uh, residence on a Saturday night for a party. He said, oh, you can bring your staff sergeant as well. I said, oh, thanks very much. He said, it's fancy dress. So I went back and uh, Tommy was his name, big six foot two, red hair, red moustache. So we've been invited to a party on Saturday night at the High Commission. It's, um, it's fancy dress. So the rest of the team got to work on what we should wear. And Tommy was made up in a sort of checked dress with a white pinion and orange wig and his army boots on. And I was dressed up as Audrey Hepburn with a pencil dress, uh, glasses, a cigarette holder and, uh, and, a, and a wig. And we turned up at the, uh, the High Commissioner's residence, knocked on the door, went through and the two doors opened up um, and everybody was dressed in like dinner suit with a, with a hat on or a little mask or a little moustache penciled on. And we were dressed in drag, just looking at the whole place inside and looked across it. And, um, Two six foot two SAS guys dressed dressed in drag at this party, completely wrong. And uh, the high commissioner came up and said, uh, "David, Tommy, how nice of you to come. Please do come in and get a drink." And uh, we went in. We had a fantastic night. So, yeah. oh, great! You just can't make that up. That's brilliant. And um, before Ben perhaps has a question on on a good book that you've read, maybe. Yeah. Um, what would you what would you like your legacy to be, David? You know, because you you've done during your time, you've served Queen and Country, uh, four tours with Special Forces. You've been um, quite a legendary uh, Colonel instructor at Santa's, changing them from uh, what to think to, to the, the, the the sort of the, the way of thinking and the, and getting to the why and how to think. Um, what would you like your legacy to be in 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 your lifetime and maybe after your lifetime? I've said before, I think uh, being a leader is not just about being a, a leader, but a role model and a mentor. Um, I think mentoring is really important. It requires good listening skills. I didn't always have good listening skills. I've only just realized how important that is. But I think mentoring gives you a legacy um, as people don't remember your achievements necessarily in the way that you do. But they do remember how you treated them and the mm. impact that you had on them in their lives. So I think that would be it. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much, and it's great having you on the series. And over to Ben, really, for the final question, Ben, before we wrap up. 
Great stuff. David, been an absolute pleasure having you um, on the uh, series. Uh, and thanks to everyone who's uh, made comments and asked questions. Uh, it's been great to have, have that interaction as well. So just to round off the interview, we always ask everyone um, who's, who's interviewed for, for a book recommendation, something that's maybe been important to them or, or just something they're reading right now, which has um, obviously been um, uh, quite fairly important for lockdown. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ben. Um, the current book, just finished it actually, it's called Quartered Safe Out Here. Yes. By George, by George McDonald Fraser. And he, he wrote the Flashman books. Yeah. It's actually about his life as an infantry soldier in Burma during the Second World War. And my father served in Burma in, the, in, the, in, in that campaign and said it's the most realistic book that he'd ever read about that campaign. And I recommend it because we're building up to VJ Day on the 15th, uh, 15th of August uh, next month which is often overshadowed by VE Day that we've just had. So I recommend it to promote VJ Day, marking the date that the Japanese surrendered and the actual end of the Second World War. And also a member of my father who recommended it to me. But VE Day marked the end of a crisis uh, for a lot of people, but it's easy to forget that the crisis continued for many others for another three months in the Far East. So that would be my recommendation. Thanks, Dave. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, David, you're, you're a good friend and you're an inspiration to so many. You've been a mentor to me and to, to others. Thank you for sharing that and also for being so open uh, and talking about something which is very difficult for other people to speak about. But unless leaders like you lead by example and speak about things like this, like Prince Harry, Harry and William did, then, then others will stay quiet and we need to, to be talking about it. But also just sharing your experiences. So, David, thank you. Good luck with your work in TELUS. Uh, they're very lucky to have you and uh, stay in touch with us all. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks very much to you both. Really enjoyed it. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.